This is the Herb Mendelssohn story. Episode 2, Medicine Man. At the end of episode one, we left the young Herb Mendelssohn in an uncertain place. On the one hand, despite the instability and poverty of his family life and his father's abuse, by his late teen years, Herb had established himself as the protector of his siblings and the scourge of neighborhood bullies. Blessed with a gift for all things mechanical, Herb could fix just about anything, and in fact spent much of his time fixing the many things that were falling apart in his father's little trafficked pharmacy. And by this time, Herb had begun dating Phyllis, whose family provided Herb with a sort of stability and support too often lacking in his own family. But on the other hand, Herb's future was uncertain. Going to college was not a given, and becoming a doctor? Well, that simply wasn't on the radar. Guys with Herb's background and lack of support and funds didn't usually become doctors. Instead, Herb was mostly focused on what was right in front of him. I thought I might be a pharmacist. My father was a pharmacist, so I thought I would be. And in fact, as a matter of fact, I thought that I would have a head start over other kids. I remember consciously thinking, well, I would have a head start because I had all these old chemicals and things my father collected. Instead, though, somehow or another, Herb got into Wayne State University. I don't even remember the intrigues of that. And even at Wayne University... I didn't buckle down. I played football, a dumb occupation, and it was the best thing that happened to me when I played football was my appendix, which knocked me out and made me realize that it's a stupid sport. It was around this time that Herb first began to think about going to medical school and becoming a doctor, which in a certain way made sense. After all, as Herb and Phyllis's second oldest living son, Jeffrey, notes, his dad was, by his nature, dedicated to taking care of people. I think he thinks that that's his purpose in the world, is to help others. And so if you're going to help others, this is one of the ways to do it. And I think that that to him was a calling, a noble calling. And that's it. I think there is a purity to my father about wanting to help people. But as Jeffrey also notes, getting into medical school was hardly assured. I think he never really expected to get into medical school. He had no guide. There was no one to say, well, this is what you should do, and this is how you do it, and this is how you succeed. And you know, he didn't have any of that. But Herb applied anyhow. And then, says David, Herb and Phyllis's firstborn son, the strangest thing happened. He got into medical school at the University of Michigan. Even he doesn't quite know how that happened. I couldn't get into Wayne's med school. Wayne rejected me. U of M took me, which was the luckiest thing that happened. First of all, U of M took me with only three years. Wayne said to me, you got to do the full four. But U of M, somehow my interview, who knows what stick? I don't know what happened. Getting into medical school at U of M was a big deal, but it also posed some serious commuting challenges. I commuted because there was no expressway, but Phyllis was so close to her family, didn't want to leave. I didn't realize, but she just loved her father and mother. And she had a job 
And so being nice to me, she made me commute back and forth to Ann Arbor every day. And boy, there were some wipeouts on the way where the snow would do a 360 degree. M14 had definitely not been built. It's like, let's take 10 mile road up about 40 miles. It was not the easiest journey. He certainly did not have a dependable or competent car to drive, but somehow he would make it back and forth regularly. Medical school in the 1950s didn't cost nearly as much as it does today, but it still costs something. And for Herb, who had little money, that meant working an extra job. I couldn't afford to join the Jewish medical fraternity, so I worked there for my meals. And as a result, he said he was doing such a good job that he would give himself a raise and he would point to his stomach. You know, that's how he gained weight. Medical school is a grind for most students. For Herb, who was still working at his father's drugstore on top of commuting and working at the fraternity, medical school was a real challenge. But like most things in his young life, Herb found a way to persevere and get through. He even managed to get his first and only A-plus on an exam. I knew what the research project of what guy, a certain kind of organic acid, and I managed to include it in my blue a sheet write-up mentioning that about that. So at any rate, I saved for a long time. The one exam in my life in med school, they got an A-plus on. Now, you might be thinking that it's at this point in the story that Herb discovers and falls in love with orthopedics, the field in which he would go on to establish a long and storied career. But you'd be wrong. The orthopedics lectures Herb sat through in medical school, presented by Dr. Carl Badgley, didn't make much of an impression. In the noon lecture at U of M, Dr. Badgley would put us everybody to sleep because it was right after the lunch. And uh, he did some talks about hip dislocations in infants. But that didn't inspire me enough to even give it any awareness in my brain. Herb's second year of medical school was a little easier, at least insofar as he stopped commuting and got a place in Ann Arbor, a boarding house across from the law school. I went occasionally with studying the beautiful law auditorium they had at U of M. You can't do that now. That opened for... In the third year, I lived at Hillel. And then the fourth year, Phyllis and I got married, and we lived in the very first apartments at North Campus at U of M. The wedding took place in 1956 at a Dachalam synagogue back when it was still in the city, before moving out to the suburbs. First of all, to have the wedding at Adat Shalom, which was a fancy place for us, but it was either the only place available or somehow they got it, and they put on a very nice affair, very nice, and they scraped together the money to get a beautiful video of it by the name brand video guy there. The video includes a shot of Herb's father-in-law, Carl, with his pants pockets turned inside out as if to say, I paid for this wedding, and now I'm broke. But all kidding aside, as Phyllis recalls, the wedding was a joyous event. You know, I was nervous about it, but when it was happening, it was beautiful. And uh, we loved it. It was great. <laughs> Unfortunately, their honeymoon was less than great. The newlyweds drove down to Florida and stayed for free at a hotel in Miami owned by Herb's uncle Izzy Kowal. They were gruff unpleasant. And when he spoke, it sounded... And we had no privacy at all. 
It was uh, <laughs> it was a very awkward uh, honeymoon. They were very overwhelming, and uh, you know they didn't charge us, and it was very very told to us constantly, you know that we weren't being charged, and it was uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. Nevertheless, things were looking up. Herb and Phyllis were thrilled to be married. And for Phyllis, moving to Ann Arbor was the first time she'd lived outside her parents' house in Detroit. And they were Phyllis's best years. She was away from everybody. Diane was born there. And it was just a good, good year. I loved it. You know, we had nice friends up there. It was a very friendly atmosphere. And I was very shy about moving up there because I was a very shy young woman. But it turned out it was it was so nice. I mean, we had nice friends. It was sweet. I loved it. Being a natural-born prankster and maker of mischief, Herb could not help pulling a fast one on his young wife. When Herb would come home with some bags or packages, Phyllis would always want to know what was in them. She's all, what do you got there in that bag? What do you got? So one day I brought home a rat inside a white. What do you got? What do you got there? Uh, In case that wasn't totally clear, Herb had brought home in a bag a rat that he'd borrowed from a medical school lab. And although neither Herb nor Phyllis remember exactly how she reacted, she was surprised and probably a little terrified, to say the least. Anyhow, as Herb mentioned a few moments ago, their first child, Diane, was born in 1957 while the happy couple were living on North Campus. This was, of course, a momentous occasion, commemorated in Herb's medical school yearbook photo. If you talk to my dad about medical school, the thing that always seems to come out is he'll show you his yearbook. And in his yearbook is a picture of my sister. And I think he is the most proud. That is what makes him the most proud of his medical school years is that he had a picture of his daughter as a baby was in his med school yearbook. That is what he really thinks of. After the year in Ann Arbor, Herb, Phyllis, and baby Diane packed up whichever clunker of a car Herb had at the time and moved back to Detroit. It was now 1958, and determined to become a surgeon, Herb landed a residency placement at Harper Hospital in Detroit. So I got accepted to Harper Hospital. It was a pretty big deal in those days. A few Jewish guys there, but very few. And it was a landed a good rest. It was like the place to go in the Detroit area at the time. During his time at Harper, Herb got his first real taste of the working world of medicine, which was often equal parts horrifying and strange. One night around 3 a.m., Herb found himself treating a man who had gotten into a fight with another guy and had bitten off his upper lip, complete with a mustache. The next morning, in comes a guy missing his upper lip. Another time, Herb saw a woman with debilitating back pain who somehow didn't know that she was hugely pregnant and about to give birth. And it became fairly routine for Herb to care for patients who'd managed to stick things in their eyes or who had burned their eyes while welding without a mask. And then there was the guy whose wife caught him cheating. And his wife caught him in bed. She prepared a big vat of molasses and lye. 
and poured it on him. I will never forget his face looked like a watermelon cut open in half. It was at Harper that Herb really encountered orthopedics for the first time. He was introduced to the field by an older resident named Dick Hall, who would go on to play a very important role in Herb's professional life. Dick took Herb under his wing and showed him some of what orthopods actually did. I would tag along with him and give him a hand. And it was like Robin Hood in the Greece and his merry men. And we throw casts on. I'd uh, sort of cover for him. And he was just, he was enthusiastic by what he did. Yeah, he loved what he did. Almost immediately, Herb grew to love orthopedics too. I said, wow, there is the field for me. Tools and, and plates and screws. That's where I first recognized what it was. For the first time, Herb began to think about orthopedics as something more than the boring subject that put him to sleep during medical school. It started to seem like a possible career path. But like so many things in Herb's life, starting his career in orthopedics did not come easy. In the late 1950s, medical specialization was relatively new. But it didn't take long for ambitious surgeons to realize that they could make a lot of money in orthopedics. And so residency spots were hard to get. When you have the surgery residency, you have to compete for orthopedics or urology or whatever you're going in. So I landed the surgery residency, but when it came to ortho, I didn't get in. But as has also been the case throughout Herb's life, he didn't give up. While doing part of his training at Receiving Hospital in Detroit, Herb became friendly with an orthopod named Ben Drump. Drump was impressed by Herb's persistence and passion for orthopedics, and so he found a way to get Herb into an orthopedic residency at Receiving. After a year of training there, Herb spent a year at an orthopedic clinic on Woodward, near the Detroit Institute of Arts. So the Detroit Orthopedic Clinic on Woodward, near the Art Museum, was specialized in polio, cerebral palsy, and birth defects. And I spent one full year there just working with those kids. There, Herb learned from a doctor named Bill Blodgett. Bill Blodgett had fun with these kids, you know. He, I, And I picked up on his humor. You know, you see this little girl, these little kids, and he. I used this expression I did a lot in my practice. Hi there, wild woman, how you doing? You know, and these are little six-year-olds. And he would just be, he was fun, and he was clever, But Herb also learned that taking care of kids with cerebral palsy and birth defects really wasn't for him. So much sadness. I couldn't, I couldn't have stayed with it. It was when I just, it's tough. These kids do have scissor gait and they walk. Now, because orthopedics plays such an important role in this story, it's worth taking a few minutes to talk about the profession and where it stood in the late 1950s when the newly minted Dr. Herb Mendelssohn began to make his way in the field. When Herb entered the profession, orthopedics was just starting to undergo rapid development. For decades, orthopedic specialists spent much of their time dealing with people who'd been stricken with polio and other diseases that can affect bones. There was a legacy of polio and tuberculosis and these kind of diseases and bone infections that just don't occur like they did then. And then there was the orthopedics, literally means straight child. Ortho is straight, pediatrics, child. 
So the field was taking crooked children and straightening them out. Scoliosis, extremity deformities. As David notes, some important developments in orthopedics took place during the Second World War. For example, before the war, a patient with a broken femur or thigh bone would be placed in traction for months until the bone healed enough to allow for the placement of a body cast. But during the war, there was pressure on physicians to get soldiers with broken bones back on their feet as soon as possible. In World War II, the Germans would put rods in femurs, and they did that, and they got people out of bed within two to four weeks' time, and in, within uh, two months to four months, they could get them back in the battlefield. They had soldiers back. Today, orthopods spend a lot of time replacing hips and knees. But in the late 1950s, orthopedics still had one foot in the pre-war era, so to speak, while the other was just sticking a toe into the modern era. For example, as Jeffrey mentioned, when Herb began his orthopedic residency, orthopods spent most of their time fixing broken bones. Many of the ways we do it now with plates and screws and mechanical devices were in their very infancy then, and many of them just did not exist in the United States. And so I think his field was a lot of use of cortisone, injections, casting, splinting, different type of operations. Because joint replacement techniques and technologies had not yet been invented, orthopods also specialized in osteotomies, procedures that involved realigning bones to preserve what was left of the joint. They were more prevalent then because you didn't have any other options. Stabilizing joints that ligaments were injured, but doing it through fairly crude methods because we didn't have the ability to get deep down in the joint in a very precise measure. For someone who loved tools and technology, Herb could not have chosen a better field of medicine. And he entered the profession at the perfect time, just as major technological advances were starting to drive the field forward. You could barely keep up the whole field of arthroscopy because technology went forward, concepts and understanding of fractures, joint replacements developed beautifully. X-ray technology also advanced. For example, fixing a broken hip often involves putting a piece of hardware in a certain position in the bone and then checking the position with an x-ray. Nowadays, we have a device, it's called an image intensifier, which you can see in real time in x-ray. And you can move the hardware so it's in the right position and you can watch it occur. But I remember with my dad, he would go to some of these hospitals, you'd have to put three or four wires and you'd have to get a good old-fashioned x-ray. They'd have to come in and take an x-ray. Then they had to develop this x-ray in what was referred to as a wet tank. The whole process was 10, 15 minutes before you found out if your wire was in the right place. And so that's how he did it in the early days. Of course, when Herb started in orthopedics in the late 50s, he had no clue how the profession would develop. All he knew was that he'd found a way to practice medicine that involved using all sorts of really cool tools, almost like a mechanic, to fix bones and help people. There are families that are musical, there are families that are artistic, there are families that are literate. We grew up with junk. <laughs> we grew up fixing things. So my dad always felt that if he could figure out fix things, the orthopedics was a natural. It's just the same thing, working with your hands, which I think he's 100% right. It's why Stevie, Jeffrey, myself went to orthopedics. We just grew up fixing things. There's some things in life you just have an instinct you can't be taught.
After finishing his residency in 1964, Herb's next move was to join a practice or to start his own practice. But he also needed to find a staff position at a hospital. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one of the themes of Herb's life is that things rarely came easily. Finding a spot at a hospital was no exception. One possibility was finding a spot at a Jewish hospital. In Detroit and throughout the United States, you had a network of Jewish hospitals. They existed for the purpose of allowing Jewish physicians to practice medicine. And he applied, here he is a Jewish guy from Detroit, born and raised, and he couldn't get on staff at the only Jewish hospital in Detroit. Sinai Hospital opened in Detroit in 1953, so it was still relatively new when Herb, a Jewish doctor born and bred in Detroit, came looking for a job. But I could not get on the staff of Sinai Hospital. I was Jewish, after all. And that is a major bird that I will never recover from. You know, the Federation would call me. and I applied and was tabled and uh, rejected. Beaumont was just starting, couldn't get on there. Grace Hospital couldn't get on there. Not getting a spot at Sinai stung, and it still stings Herb to this day. It was due to a combination of there being only so many orthopedic posts available, hospital politics, and good old-fashioned greed. It is the nature of a lot of physicians, perhaps the majority, to want to protect their turf, and they lose sight of what the mission of the institution was. It was just, this is for us and not for anybody else. And so Herb had to scramble, and scramble he did. During his residency, Herb had moonlighted at what he called one-horse hospitals, small understaffed facilities that didn't have orthopedic residents or residents of any kind. In the early years after his residency, Herb continued to find work at these one-horse operations. Hospitals like Brent, like uh, Northwest General, maybe eight hospitals scattered around. There maybe a dozen of them around. Lakeside General, just the fact that you worked there made people turn their noses down. You can't be any good. You go there. As Herb and Phyllis's youngest child, Steve, notes, Herb was able to find work at these small hospitals because it was before emergency medicine had emerged as a specialty. And so physicians looking to make some more money would cover shifts in the ER. That could be a pediatrician, an OBGYN, an internist, and they would have very little knowledge about how to handle any broken bone or ankle. So they would call my father, and he worked at hospitals that didn't have resident physicians, so he would go in to the hospital a lot of the time. By this time, Herb and Phyllis had their second child, David, who was born in 1960. And to provide for his growing family, Herb worked literally around the clock. I learned more in my night work there, but of course it kept me from being home at all, too. So during those 60s, I was busy working every damn night, earning enough money to keep going. In many ways, having to moonlight at these one-horse hospitals was a grind. But it also challenged Herb and made him even more resilient than he already was. It made me capable of handling interesting, difficult situations with limited, you know, the OR. One hospital I went to, you had to carry the patients up a, a flight of steps to get to the operating room. You had to carry them. The elevator didn't take you there. It was crazy. At Northwest Dearborn Medical Center, Herb got to be a sort of jack of all trades. I worked at night, every night, night after night, but I set the bones and they loved to have me on call. And in those days, we didn't use gloves or anything. They, you held the instruments with a hemostat, 
I worked on everything. And sometimes situations turned comical. He's moonlighting in the middle of the night at one of his places, and some drunk comes in there and is somewhat belligerent. And after a while, he gets really angry and says, This is terrible. I hate it. I'm getting out of here. The guy made his way to Harper Hospital, where Herb was a resident, and Herb made sure to be at Harper when the guy showed up. And he says, And this drunk comes in and sees my dad there. It just was, didn't know how to process that. Herb finally did find a position at a hospital, at St. Mary's, a Catholic hospital in Livonia. My dad's not Catholic, and these are a unique breed of Catholics. They're Felician, and it's tough. And I know he was far from the chosen one. We may be the chosen people, but not at that hospital. And he had to deal with that. St. Mary's wasn't exactly the friendliest place for Jewish doctors. So a guy named Joe Hirsch had been on at St. Mary's. And when I arrived there, they had kicked him off the staff because they claimed he was looking at other people's mail. He was Jewish. And over at St. Mary's in those days, you almost, was that a two-way mic? The nuns are watching everything you do. There was, a, they had a, a Saturday night massacre of a bunch of Jewish guys on the staff. By this time, Herb, Phyllis, Diane, and David had moved to Oak Park, and St. Mary's was more than 20 miles away, with no highways to make the commute easier. It wasn't uncommon for Herb to arrive back home after a long day at the hospital, only to find that he'd been called back to deal with some emergency. To avoid that hassle, Herb invested a small fortune in one of the first available mobile phones, so he could hear from the hospital on the road instead of only after driving all the way home. He had this, like, it looked like a mobile phone, and one of the bigger ones, like a regular phone, where he could communicate through an operator and get patched in on a phone call that was extremely expensive, I'm sure, but it allowed him to not waste his entire life driving back and forth. A buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air. The monkey thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back, but the monkey grabbed his neck. Now firmly established at St. Mary's, Herb's next move was to start a practice, or better yet for a young physician, join an established practice to learn the ropes. But remember, for Herb Mendelssohn, things almost never came easily. So I come out, and as usual in my life, for some reason, Nobody's interested in picking me up. You know, I, I'm i parading myself around. Nobody's taking me in. But as always, Herb persevered and found a way. Joe Hirsch, the Jewish doctor who'd been axed during the Saturday night massacre in St. Mary's, had an office in Detroit near Sinai Hospital. He offered to share the space with Herb. He said, come on, you can use my place. And he very fairly and ethically we shared office and uh, uh, kept track of what I earned, and I paid him. And he had some clever ideas. He had a drawer that you could push to either side. You know, you have the tools you need on this side. It would push out that side or this side. Yeah, mechanical guy. Now, if you recall, it was an orthopedic resident at Harper, Dick Hall, who took Herb under his wing and first introduced him to the world of orthopedics. After completing his residency, Dick had gone into the military and had been away for several years. He returned to Detroit in the mid-60s and paid Herb a visit at the office he shared with Joe Hirsch. So here I am working in Hirsch's office, and Dick Hall comes out, pops in to visit me. But I'm not there. I'm backed up in the O or somewhere. And in my waiting room are people that have been waiting, 
And Dick comes in and sees him for me and clears him out. And by the time I get there, whew, I, you know, when you're backed up like that. In the cutthroat world of orthopedics, Dick was a true and trusted friend and mentor. He looked up to Dick. So Dick being Christian was more refined, I think, more, I won't say country club, but came from a more privileged background. I think my dad looked up to him in that way. I think he respected him as a surgeon and as a physician and as a kind person. Herb and Dick decided to team up and practice together. At first, they joined a group practice consisting of physicians in different specialties, which was a new idea at the time. I was the orthopod there and Jack Shapiro, a bunch of guys came into a big group and they were very friendly and nice and treated me well and they had parties. So there were good times. Eventually, though, Dick wanted to start his own practice. So he and Herb rented a small space from a dentist named Applefeld and began seeing patients. Soon, they were bursting at the seams. We were so busy that literally at the end of the quarter was a toilet and my girls, in order to write up new patients, sat on the toilet and had a little desk in front of them. They would type up the patients sitting on the toilet. And we got so crowded there, yeah. The practice grew so quickly that Herman Dick soon started to think about upgrading to a larger office. Or, even better, building something of their own. So I did, with Dick, found a, uh, I saw a nice open field, and there was an old house there. And I was thinking of maybe building an office on this green land. It was off a beautiful stream of the Rouge River that meandered in there and kept changing all the time with flooding uh, plains. And so um, the old man, Mr. Fisher, who we bought it from, said, spare my house. I've had this house. You know. and so one thing came to another, and we decided to save the house and build a wing on to the office there. With a growing family, a flourishing practice, and a trusted partner by his side, Herb was in a pretty good place. But turmoil was on the horizon. We'll get into that on the next episode of The Herb Mendelssohn Story. The Herb Mendelssohn Story is a production of Tribal Knowledge Podcasting. The executive producer is Jeremy Shear. The associate producer is Hannah Levine.